0: 1986, power plant workers in the town of Pripyat in the Soviet Union reported sightings of a huge black-winged creature, sometimes a bird with glowing red eyes, sometimes a winged and headless man. Later that month, the nearby power station of Chernobyl exploded in one of the worst nuclear disasters the world has ever seen up to 16,000 people have died from the effects of the radiation that drifted out over Europe. Visitors and locals still tell stories of ghosts haunting the abandoned towns around the disaster area. Today, teams of artists and scientists are trying to figure out a way to warn future generations about the lingering threat from the nuclear waste we have barrelled and buried under the earth. A way that would survive the slow decay of language and the possible collapse of civilization as we know it. One suggestion was that we should breed a species of cat which would change colour in the presence of nuclear radiation and release it into the wild around disposal sites. We would then spread myths and legends that if you see a feline creature shifting colours in the dark, you stay well away. Welcome to Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, where we ask poets to rewrite the myths, legends and fairy stories they want to pass down the generations, stories they want to preserve for whatever future comes next. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, and joining me are Andrew McMillan, Ella Frears and Annie Hater just like to warn you that this episode may contain adult themes and strong language so listener discretion is advised. With that said, hello everyone, welcome. Hi. Hi. Hello. So all of your stories and myths that you've chosen are unpacking love and sexuality and romance and of course. These are themes in which our culture is completely saturated. You can't get away from saccharine hearts and serenading on balconies and that kind of thing. So what are the first stories of like, love and romance you remember encountering? Andrew?
1: I mean, I guess for me it would be what a lot of people's were, which is kind of in fairy stories and in children's picture books, I guess, as we're growing up. And it's interesting... I think to look back now, I've got young nieces and nephews now and to go and try and kind of find books for them and to kind of examine them and think actually what are the stories that we're being told or kind of what are the stereotypes or the kind of ideals of love that are being put forward. There are two books that I really loved that I bought recently one was Julius and the Mermaid where Julius kind of wants to become a mermaid and the other one is the very famous one with the two penguins, two male penguins that want to raise a child and there are interesting books like that that are part of the No Outsiders project which has been so controversial in recent years in primary schools that are kind of trying to show young kids I think especially these kind of different versions of love or different sides of love but certainly for me growing up it was The the Prince and the Princess of, of Fairy Stories as I think it was for for everyone.
0: Is that something that sounds familiar Annie? Definitely I think a lot of the legends
2: we encountered are kind of stories of passivity and that's quite frightening because if we think of like the sadism of Sleeping Beauty someone has to battle through thorns to find someone who's asleep and can't respond until she's kissed. You think about Cinderella and like her sisters have to have their toes cut off to fit into a shoe to appeal to someone and that's Really interesting notion of like conformity and love and strangeness that children are taught.
0: But it's funny that even though these myths are a key vector through which the normal scripts of love and romance are conveyed, when you go back to the, I guess, blood and guts of the original stories, there's something about it that gives us permission to consider romance and love in all of its ugliness and all of its kind of difficulty as well. What do you think about that, Ella? Yeah, I think so. I think it's weird looking back at the stories
3: that, that we read um, as children. Actually, when I was trying to think, when you asked the question first, I was trying to think of any stories that I could remember that had any love in. And I, all I could think of was The Hungry Caterpillar, because... He really loved food um, <laughs> but uh, no I think it's it's interesting I had um an audiobook of the Greek myths when I was little and obviously they're sort of watered down slightly there's no rape in in the children's audiobook and and yet in, the, in when you when you come to learn about those Greek myths you see how sort of dark they are in the, in the same way that Annie was saying about fairy tales
0: and it's funny how Even though the kind of more directly kind of violent and taboo stuff has been removed, ideas of possession and domination are still very much there and seen as unproblematic or just kind of to be expected when, you know, in a sense we're so used to them, it might almost be even be useful to confront them. Mm. as the violence that they are definitely and i think that because i didn't grow up in a religious family um
3: that was my sort of first encounter with a kind of religion i guess and um what really struck me was how flawed the gods were and how sort of human and that felt much more real to me as a child than what i was sort of experiencing of adults than um than say christianity that we were learning in school You've chosen a Greek myth. Mm. Would you like to tell us about that? Yeah, so I've chosen um, I've chosen Eurydice, sort of famous for being married to Orpheus very briefly. Um, she died, was bitten by a snake, and he was heartbroken and journeyed to the underworld to get her back. Um, and the famous thing about Orpheus is that he was a great poet, a great musician, and uh, sort of sang to, to bring her back, sang to Hades. And Hades said, you can have her back, but you, she has to walk behind you. You're not allowed to look at her. Um, Obviously, he looks and she dies again. Eurydice, Morning Pages Preface These are my morning pages Though us inhabitants of the eternal basement Have no rising sun No morning to speak of No sleep from which to wake and write our first thoughts My mind can't help but enact day Night A force of habit Dragging a morning up through my brain's ethereal mist drawing a curtain of evening down with my eyelids. Divorced from time, dawn and dusk are emotional states. They are never not a decision. These are the parts of me that remain human, mimicking life. These are the parts I wish to preserve. One. Mirage of a roast bird as though through a dirty oven window. Sudden shadow in the shape of a lemon tree. Today I nearly remembered salt. As a girl, I loved food. Fire, steam, a pot with two handles, a... I find the act of remembering, by which I mean trying to remember, distressing. The atmosphere here resists any kind of effort, makes it impossible to dredge the lake of my unconsciousness for anything. It's easier to wait until an image, a sensation, a smell floats across. I keep a food diary of sorts, repeat it, A mantra to feel fed. An echo like the sound of wine being poured. Sudden shadow in the shape of a lemon tree. The first time I died, I missed life. But gently, as one might miss their childhood. Sweet and cloudy, always permeated with a feeling like falling asleep with the sun on your face. I didn't mind. I drifted, whispered his name. I let my mind wander through the ghosts of trees. I let go, took forgetfulness on like a lover. Then, there he was, Orpheus, not drifting but walking, striding, singing. After the second death, life, being alive, throbbed like a phantom limb, its absence twinged in me. Today day I nearly remembered salt, sudden shadow in the shape of a lemon tree. Does mud count? Two. I remember the first death, the snake bite, heat and tightness. I felt those two points of no return pierce my ankle, saw the striped rope of my sandal disappear into the grass. I fell and everything was vivid and warm. The smell of the earth in that moment was better than anything. It opened up, the ground. Or maybe I closed my eyes. I remember thinking, oh, and then, oh well. An echo like the sound of wine being poured. A thought about fresh fish from the river. Violent yearning for the sun. Sometimes I forget where I am. I'll hold my breath and start counting. I'll pass a hundred. A thousand, five thousand, and realise I need never breathe again. The embarrassment of remembering you're dead. The embarrassment of embarrassment when there's no one else around. Half reaching into a pocket for something that isn't there. Wondering what the weather will be like. Journaling the morsels I almost taste. Three. An argument involving pomegranate. The notion of ambrosia, even that delicious And laughter has a taste now I find myself chewing it like gum With no-one to talk to, no-one to measure myself against, I've lost all sense of how I should be I'd always been quiet, focused on softness Now I feel restless, hungry, there's a small hard kernel at the heart of me I hate it, this part of myself But I know that if anyone tried to take it from me, I'd kill them. A phantom olive. The thought of dough proving under a cloth. Four. Coming back to life didn't hurt at all. More like a familiar drug kicking in, taking the edge off death. It was lovely. A resurrection is not a reset button. You don't return to your factory setting. I followed him out of the underworld, but I wasn't looking at him. I was ready to overtake. Buoyant, brimming. Maybe you'll be shocked. I felt horny. Lusty, not for him, not for anything in particular. Rather, for everything. In that moment, I felt I could take the whole world, its oceans, its mountains, its gods inside me, and fuck it all. Can you imagine? Me, the pretty girl with lowered eyes, pinning the earth riding it and all its creatures to the afterlife. Sudden shadow in the shape of a lemon tree, a thought about fresh fish from the river, a thin mist, cold-tasting, menthol. He looked, of course. As his eyes met mine, I felt my organs tugged backwards, my insides dropped, hit the back of my body, and then the rest of me fell. In that moment, the part of me he loved sang about, the part that was his wife slithered away. I haven't bothered to look for it. Five. Repeated fantasy of butter spread thickly on. No, I've lost it. I've been having memories that can't be mine. More lucid than anything of myself I've managed to salvage here. Memory one. I buy something hot and delicious in a paper bag. I'm walking down the street eating it as I pass a garage a man outside laughs. Is that good, he asks, and I nod mouthful. full. Well, careful you don't eat too much, he says. And the way he looks at me makes me want to spit it out and never eat again. Memory 2 On holiday in a warm town with walls like overbaked biscuits, my parents are buying tomatoes. I'm tightrope walking along a low wall. I suddenly become aware of a group of men across the street, staring, gleeful, like they've stolen something from me. But I can't work out what's missing. They're shouting, calling out to me. I slip. These two memories are the same girl, I think. After the first, I looked for her here, that drop in her stomach so familiar. Sudden shadow of wine being poured, violent yearning for wheat. Six. I thought about her endlessly. I replayed those memories, tried to cut them at the points before the men. The hot good food, the sweet obliviousness. It never worked. I held on to them, mind clenched, but it was like holding on to sand. Then, just as I'd almost forgotten her, another one. Memory three. I'm a teenager with other teenagers, boys. They dare me to swim across the lake. It's not a big lake and I'm a good swimmer. I set off. Bravada in a polka dot swimsuit. Around halfway, the water gets very cold, very dark. My legs feel unsafe, bare, kicking hard as though they're trying to kick something off, away. This is different. I felt her fear, palpable. Could feel her presence, the ripples coming off her legs like she was right above me. The line between our worlds, nothing more than the lake's surface. A small part of me hoped she'd drown, hoped she would sink down here and land in my arms. That is what this place does to you. I'm a ghoul, a forgetful, selfish ghoul. Hades, I can't judge you now. Seven. Today, I nearly remembered salt. Today, I put my finger in my mouth and tasted myself. I had a taste, I was a body. I kissed my hand for, well it could have been years. More memories drifted in. Memory four. I'm in my early twenties, a work Christmas party stumbling down steps into a tiny mirrored nightclub. Lights flashing red, blue, green, syrupy rum and coke in a plastic cup. At some point the dance floor thins. In the mirror, pulsating through the colours, I see my married boss's hand sliding up my skirt, but I can't feel it. I can't feel anything. In the mirror, his face is fixed on my body. I meet my own eyes as he finds what he's looking for. Her eyes, unsettling, the dullness, the deadness. Everything swaying, pulsating, but her. Why didn't she stop him? Troubled, I suck my salty thumb, repeat my mantra, moan into the ether. I want to forget this one, but nothing's as it was now. Things are shifting. Mirage of an echo, a lemon, a dirty oven window. Sudden shadow of violence proving under a cloth. The notion of yearning. Eight. Today I nearly remembered salt. A cool mist, an argument. Another memory, this time unannounced. I was pulling the shutters of my eyelids down, making an evening, and then there it was. A lump in my throat, and I was choking on it. Memory five. The lake again, but I'm not in the water. I'm on the muddy bank, and the water is on me. Faceless, shifting. Heavy, it's pinning me down and I think it will crush me. I kick and kick, but my legs don't make impact. The sky is dark and cold. I'm losing consciousness and then it's pressing into me and I can't, I can't, I... No, she can't, not like that. I hit out at the mist, I hold my breath, I cough, I shout, but the memory's gone. I can't see her anymore. Wine, laughter, olive, fish, wine, lemon, laughter. And then, something falling from above like a leaf, not a memory, but a vision. It's her. It's you, I say. She's shivering, wet. I reach out for her, but she turns away. No, she's whispering. No, please. She can't see me. Stay, I shout. But she drifts off into the ghostly wood. I move to follow, but find myself rooted. Wait, I shout. And that's when i see them not trees not the ghosts of trees but women everywhere some falling others drifting rocking tears on their faces some close enough to touch translucent the mist they are the mist wine laughter olive fish wine lemon laughter thousands and thousands of women mud, mist, lemon, and me with my second death, second sight, mental violence, pomegranate, sun, stuck, rooted, biting my arm and not bleeding, laughter, olive, screaming as another girl's memories begin to filter through, laughter, olive, salt, screaming as more broken women fall around me, salt, fish, sun, screaming for how long, I can't say, I haven't stopped. What drew you to the myth of Eurydice? I'm really interested in the wives of famous men and how they're sort of often overlooked. And Orpheus is famous for being this sort of great creative, this poet. And Eurydice is sort of just a character within that narrative and somebody who's sort of toyed with between life and death. And I think I was interested in the idea that she might have been a poet in her own right.
0: Tell me about her relationship with Orpheus as you see it. Yeah, I kind of, I
3: sort of chose to mostly omit him from my version. Um, I think there's been enough written about him. Um, And so (laughs) (laughs) in mine, I think he comes up once because he's sort of like, I guess, a vital part of why she dies the second time. Um, And then there's a bit where um, I sort of talk about the part of her that's his wife sort of slithering away and that she doesn't bother to look for it. And I think that I'm interested in, in the sort of the female character, the female voice and any sort of romance or relationship that was submissive has sort of has disappeared through death.
0: Growing up as a woman or like living as a woman or in a feminine life in any kind of way inculcates a kind of strange addiction with the idea of being looked at and being watched and being observed that's incredibly difficult to shake off even if you know exactly what's going on there and In your story, you really lean into the kind of fatal poison chalice of of what it is to be looked at, even in a loving way, even as a muse and wellspring of creativity.
3: Mm, Yeah, I'm really fascinated by this and um, obviously have experienced it myself as a young woman um, and wanted to sort of draw, not that, that any of it is particularly true, but draw on those sort of anecdotes of being too young to be looked at in that way and yet... Um, feeling it very strongly and not knowing um, this idea that it it almost feels like they're sort of taking something or they're mopping something up from you and 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 you're not sure what it is that they're taking at that age Um, but you're aware you sort of not even that you want to hold on to because I don't buy into this idea that that sexuality can be stolen from a woman I think that that's a damaging idea anyway but um, just that it sort of it allows you not to be present in that moment and I think thinking about Eurydice as a possible creative herself I'm sort of, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this idea that women don't write nature poems in the same way that men do often, although, I mean, some have beautifully, because you sit down with a notebook on a hillside and if there's any bloke around, they'll come and ask you what you're reading or writing. <laughs> 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 Is that familiar,
2: Annie? Um... Often when I'm sitting reading on the train, men will come up to me and ask me why I'm reading and what's so interesting about my book. And it's not quite the same thing, but it's almost like an entitlement to my being or my presence or my conversation that I find really frustrating. I've had people pull my earphones out before and say, why aren't you there to listen to me? And It's the kind of strangeness of having your own interior life that's constantly
3: interrupted
2: as if you're not a being in your own right and you're a pair of ears or just like a walking mouth that's just there to gab away, mm. so I, yeah, I empathise with
3: that. Yeah, I wonder how many ideas have been disrupted or sort of lost because of these interruptions and this idea that, that Eurydice is, is killed by a look, Um, And I think about all those sort of creative deaths that happen because men are are observing and it's difficult to be present when when you know you're being observed in that way.
2: Absolutely. I also think it's interesting in all the versions of the myths I've read from Rilke to sort of Greek versionings, I've never really heard if Eurydice wanted to come back. She's always the shadowy figure in the underworld when she's found again, but we don't actually hear if she wants to return. She might actually be quite happy there and it might be a blessing that she's kind of shoved back
0: into, you know, the underworld. There is something particularly compelling about that prolonged inner monologue, that meandering free flow of uninterrupted consciousness that delves into some dark areas and delves into some thoughts that she's not sure of herself, but still that sense of freedom to explore the parts of you that are ugly the parts of you that kind of even you yourself might be uncomfortable with or equivocal about, without the need to second-guess them against what will someone think? What would someone think if they saw this?
3: Yeah, I think the sort of inclusion of the food diary, I think I I wanted to identify something that she loved separate from sort of sex, desire, um, and and a thing sort of... I mean, it is bodily, but um, that sort of felt pure or untouched in that way and yet it's sort of tainted by this fact that she's not alive and she can't enjoy that.
0: It sort of reminded me of that constant hum of self-denial that a lot of people that you know I'd say the majority of people have around food it's very hard to escape in our culture and the way in which we're encouraged to constantly self-monitor so even if there isn't an Orpheus around you know the Orpheus is in your head and it picks up on what you've written about a lot Andrew about the idea of the body beautiful and the incredibly monitored body and the sort of burden that that places on people
1: yeah I mean I think that I mean it's interesting I think listening to this conversation I love this idea of kind of the the many creative deaths that have happened just through the male gaze. I think that's a really interesting thing. And I think what men have found, queer men particularly, but also now laterally straight men in the past sort of decade, maybe decade and a half, that suddenly the kind of implications or restrictions of a kind of perfect gaze... Um, that was often kind of used to control the way that women looked, what they could eat, the way their bodies were meant to look, how they were meant to present themselves. Just because capitalism will eventually kind of seep into everything and want to monetize it, that's now turned on other men. And so suddenly, for the first time, you've had a kind of a generation of men beginning to grow up with the with very similar kind of um, aesthetics and ideals, I guess, about the way that they might. Um, have to present themselves the way in which they might have to behave, the way in which they might um, kind of have to dress and things like that.
0: Mm. So, so talk to me about longing. Talk to me about that desire that seems to be kind of weakened for the world. The first time she dies, but when she's condemned to death by Orpheus, as opposed to by a snake bite, then suddenly her longing for the world comes back with a vengeance. Why is that? I was, I was sort of thinking about what
3: resurrection might do to you and um, a friend of mine was showing me images of like statues recently that of, of, of saints that have been resurrected or, or religious figures or sort of th- uh, throughout cultures um, and they've all got these like enormous sort of bulging eyes um, and and he he was we were talking about this idea of sort of site like this new site that you might have because of the the knowledge that you gain through having died and come back and because she dies again i wonder whether that Knowledge. I, I thought that that knowledge might stay with you, and but you're you're sort of trapped with it. There's n- there's no way to use it, and so she's forced to see all of these women who are sort of broken and dying, um, which I think is is sort of something that's present in the Greek myths
0: anyway. And I, I sort of wanted to bring that in. Mm, she's forced to live this kind of double life, like mm. not quite alive, not quite dead, and I, for some reason I found that very resonant or very compelling as part of your poem because that sense of self-denial and a sense of equivocation about being of life but not quite in life is I think something that a lot of people would relate to that idea of living a double existence and living not quite within the bosom of society mm. entirely and that's something that Annie picks up on in her story can you tell me a little bit about the myth you've chosen
2: Um, So I've chosen to write about selkies. And selkies are these seals which are able to transform into women when they remove their skins. But a common pattern of the selkie myth is that a fisherman finds a selkie, steals her skin, traps her, wipes her and binds her to the earth and hides her skin so she can't escape. Um, And what happens then is that the selkie has children with this man and one day she finds her skin. And she spent the whole narrative craving salt water, craving return. And she's forced to decide whether or not to abandon her children and return to the sea. Which I thought was really beautiful and a really interesting kind of looking at coercive control throughout the centuries. And this sense of being tied in by your spouse to your babies and wanting another life or a past life that you couldn't have access to. Mm. So this piece is called Sealing. The Finding Doglit by daybreak, the fisherman hauled his nets to shore. He liked to watch the seals coming in, watch them bundle themselves, all flesh and thickness. His mammy had told him about the seal wives, their heathen love, how they played on the sands. They were four today, whiskering up the cove with barks and flaps. He wondered if they were sisters. There was no telling what went on in the water. The next morning, as he dragged his boat in, there were no seals. But there were three women. Lovely women. Women bathing in the sea. He'd never seen a woman fully naked before. On the sand were three swathes of greyed hide. He dropped his nets and ran. The seal-women grabbed their skins, then slipped in. Their mothers had told them to fear land-folk, our theft, our pity, our church spires. He remembered the fourth seal from yesterday, tracked the shoreline round, found her bathing at a low point in the bay. Her seal-skin was draped over a rock. This was no common woman. This was no common seal. She was all alone. No sisters to save her. He knew what to do. No woman in town would have him. He stepped closer to the skin. The theft. He grasped her sealskin with his flab fingers. She said something then, but he could not fathom her yelps. I believe it was something to the tune of My sisters will come for me Her skin on his back, he gripped her hair by the roots She nipped his cheek so he broke her nose, then bound her arms with his net He dragged her howling home The Binding He tied her to the kitchen table Then sliced off a piece of her flipper skin and shoved it in her mouth. She was quiet then. He hid her skin in a place she would not spy. He filled a bucket and soaped her down. After a full toweling she was soft and dry. Next, he combed her hair till it hung lank as Jesus. He spent time picking out her clothes and was pleased with the outcome. She wore a sagging dress of his mother's, and a chain of pearls like an albatross. Each sphere weighed her down. She longed for her sisters. He stared at her like he'd eye his toenails, filthy but ripe for biting. He fried mackerel for their dinner. He offered her a spoon, but She could not get the grasping right. She'd never held anything but her sisters. She gagged at the heat. They spat the bones out, two by two. That night, he slept in the fish cellar for decency. She stared at the ceiling. Wondered where he'd hidden her skin. She cursed her carelessness. Her sisters had warned her not to linger on the sands. They'll take your blubber for bread. Men have no love for the sea women. She dreamt of her sisters fishing on the roof, hooking sailors off the sands and eating them for supper. She woke to barking. Her sisters had hauled their blubbering bodies from the waters, Crawled up the land to bring her home. Roused by these cows, the fisherman flung his door open. The seal women snapped at his shins, but his gut hook slit skin. The next morning, a baptism was followed by a marriage, the bride fit only for a funeral. There were blood tracks stretching all the way from the house to the sea. There were blood tracks stretching all the way from the house to the sea. The Wedding The village had some consternation about the marrying of beasts and men. But after the gift of a barrel of eels, the reverend agreed... Even sinners among the seals could be saved. The whole parish came to watch. The holy water inspired tears in the selkie. She gazed at these creatures with their fat eyes. After the fisherman bound her with his ring, he would not let her within ten yards of the sea. The bedding. Wary as a fox, she regarded him, her black eyes unblinking. Even his hands were ugly. She could have wept at them. She longed for the beauty of her sister seals, their sweet ears, the lick of whiskers on her belly. When he first felt her, she snarled. She would not open to loving touch. Her love was for her sisters alone. She tasted like the sea. The breaking. The first time he left her in the house untied, she smashed every object. She was looking for her skin. Amongst the pieces of crockery and his pride, she found nothing save a lock of his mother's grizzled hair. This she pissed on. When he came home, his fists taught her to keep the house well kempt. He learnt how to tread on a heart like a waxed drum to stop her trailing off to see, to see her kin. Speaking his tongue was swallowing stones. The crook of a selkie's tongue cannot manage abstractions. She had lost all the words for water. Every meal she'd point out the window to the sea. He'd gaze at her swollen belly, shake his head. Once He found her face down in a pail of water, swallowing. If she could will her skin to grow back, she would. In spring she gave birth to a son with a seal's face, round black eyes dreaming of the wet. He lived just two yowling days. Her husband would not allow a sea burial, so they placed him in the ground. Selkies do not believe in death, only the moving of a body's breath from wave to wave. Held by the soil, she did not know where his soul had gone. Soon her gut bloated to the swell of his next child, After years of breaking in, the men in the village joked that they should sell their wives, catch them a seal, that mouth so open you could see the pink inside. The Rising The second whelp lived, with only webbed feet to show for her sealish mother. He named her Marrow. The selkie still searched for her skin, dreamt of seals gliding. One stormy day, Merrow asked what the shadow in the ceiling was. Standing there, the selkie saw grey in the crook of a beam. He'd sealed it into the ceiling while she slept. She tugged it down. Breathing sea musk, she nuzzled marrow, then ran to the ragged sea, slipped into the wet of her skin, slid in. Three scarred seals rose to greet her, licked her clean of house dust and men. Together they dived and spun and sang. The meeting. Now, fifteen, Mero waited at the shore for her mammy. The silvering had spread up her calves. She was hiding it from her daddy. Any mention of her mother sent him into a fever. For months, he'd slept clutching a haddock to his chest. He'd promised her to a man in the village. He stank of pig breath. There was a stirring in the water, then four grey, bobbing heads rose. The first seal spoke to Merrow through her nose. The silvering is a sign of your body changing. Come to us when you are full silver. You will be both human and seal. You can live your life on land or in the sea. No man can hold you back. Mero nodded. Her mother stroked her hardening toes with a tattered flipper. Her seal aunts licked her hands. Then they turned and slid into the sea. She did not know where her mother had gone. Only that she had. From wave to wave, carried by the sea's intention, she would be back soon.
0: So tell me about sisterly love in this poem, because we are trained from the cradle With the kind of suspicion that romantic love is the apotheosis of all human interactions, right? But that's very much not the case in your retelling.
2: When I think about all the people in my life who've loved me and looked after me, the majority of those people are women. And that's not to say that there aren't wonderful men, because there are, but... um, it's been my mother who's really supported me all my life. And when I think about the communities I've lived in, um, particularly as a, as a queer woman, um, it's been kind of the women and the non-binary people who've really looked after me, I think, and supported my work and my writing. Um, I think what's really frightening about the Selkie story is this idea that the Selkie is stripped of her community, she's stripped of her skin, and she's left bare and exposed in a household to become this wife to follow this paradigm of mothering and childbearing and yet she has no relatives to support her she has no mothers she doesn't have a father either to guide her in the course of that life Um, and what she really craves is that kind of system of support and the kind of love that isn't founded on isn't necessarily founded on desire or lust because there's some ambiguity about that There's a bit of Bestiality or incest, or something bit of a bit sapphic, saucy. like a bit a bit of ambiguity, a, a bit of sapphic lesbianic love. Um, but what she longs for is the kind of tenderness and the intimacy of that. And in kind of the sexual scenes in this poem, I tried to emphasise kind of the harshness and the bindingness of it all, and that sense of being somehow surmounted or subdued or you know subsumed by someone else's lust.
0: So, do you think that her husband? does authentically love her in any way. Because that's almost more terrifying, right? The idea that not just someone has kidnapped you against your will and is this completely condemnable villain, but in their eyes, that that is an expression of some kind of tenderness.
2: Absolutely. I think it's the tenderness of his brutality shows that. That's not to say that his form of love is right or correct, but he at least loves the idea of her, if not the embodiment of her. And that's what I think is scary and that's what's strange. Like, in the abusive relationships I've been in, like, I've had no doubt that the people who were in them with me really loved me, but they didn't necessarily like me. (laughs) And that's kind of a crucial difference and distinction, I think.
0: Ella, that seems to be something that was undergirding your poem as well, that idea that romance and our usual scripts of love and being desired being looked at being regarded as something something desirable comes along with a fatally heavy burden Mm.
3: yeah I think it's what it's really beautiful um what uh, the way that Annie's explored that in that um yeah quite often it's the tenderness that is the, the most horrifying thing and that that um that somebody might think that they're paying you a compliment like on the street or or something and and it's, it's actually really sort of a violation. Um, and in Annie's piece, one of the things that I really loved about it was the the details, how sort of bodily um, the, the abuse or the violence is, um, the sort of flab fingers and the um, hair lank as Jesus, all of those descriptions that are sort of bravely looking directly at um, what's going on um, and how physical all of that was is kind of I mean, it's, it's rendered really beautifully, but is really unsettling.
1: I think that violence that um, Ella picks up on is really interesting. It, it strikes me, I was wondering kind of how you managed just Kind of craft wise, I guess, to put that together because I think um, on one level, just the tale that we're told is incredibly violent. So the part of the fin that's cut off and the stripping of the skin and things like that. But actually, the moments that really jolted me as I heard it were things like the he looks at her like a toenail, kind of dirty but ready to <laughs> bite and or chew, and that's kind of hideous. So then, the finds the lock of the mother's hair and pisses on it. Um, there's something about that juxtaposition that somehow emphasises that it's not necessarily that kind of grand violence which is horrific but it's these very mundane acts of of kind of visceral disgust somehow within it and I just wondered if you were conscious when you were writing it of, of how those things sat together where, are they part of the same thing are, are they kind of different sides of the same coin I guess maybe
2: absolutely i think it's sort of a process of attrition so the ways in which you wear someone down the ways in which you control their appearance and um, thinking about your story ella which i, I love and um, what's so interesting about it are kind of the gaps and the kind of narrative lacuna and the fact that we don't get an insight into their kind of relationship and what happened there because for me there's a brutality of that silence and what's left unspoken um, because there's so much about food and so much about consumption. That idea of almost being eaten up by someone or having elements of yourself torn out or consumed is really interesting. Um, are you familiar with like the algalmetophilic myths? Mm-hmm. So they're kind of the stories about people who are in love with statues. So there's like Pygmalion. Mm-hmm. But there's sort of, again, that idea of falling in love with an object or the idea that you project onto that object that I think is really interesting Mm. with Eurydice, particularly because of her silence and her kind of ghostly form and the idea that we don't know if she's gazing back Mm. or if she was gazing back at him or wanting him to look back at her. It's
1: interesting. It strikes me just listening to this conversation, like you talk about this kind of idea of love of statues and things like that. Mm. Like something that's always fascinated me in contemporary culture is object and sexuality. So these Mm. people that are in love with the Berlin Wall or in love with the Statue of Liberty and things like that and marry it. And the kind of critique of that is always, well, obviously, how can it kind of hug you back or kind of love you back or anything like that? And I think, well, I've been in relationships like that. So I kind of, there's not necessarily a, yeah, you know, people that can't hug you back or love you back. And um, but also what it, it, it means that I think the power of, of that piece of the Selkies is somehow that there is a man projecting onto something that he presumes is inanimate or projecting onto something that he presumes has no feeling, has no kind of um, empathetic um, ability to kind of be alive in that relationship and actually then the tension or the horror comes when we hear that or we see that obviously there is and we see that kind of emotional reaction of, of the woman kind of trapped in that space from a man who presumes that she is both his property and a kind of inanimate thing that he might as well be in love with, a part of the Berlin Wall.
0: Mm. So, talking of all things statues and idolatrous, Andrew... I believe you have a story for us.
1: Um, Yep. So, I mean, I I guess I cheated a little bit in that this isn't necessarily a myth, or maybe it is, depending on one's belief structures and systems. So I thought about Jesus um, and I thought about the kind of story of Jesus and his disciples, really, I think. And in in many ways, trying to re-queer or kind of dig into the queer subtext of ideas around devotion, of male love, and of kind of... Of worship, in many ways, I think. So this is Gospel. One. I saw him first in Soho Square, the long, thin plank of his body in repose, hair spilling over from the tipped jug of his head. He was alone. It's important to remember that, before everything that happened, there was something about him that made men grow towards him like a plant towards the light. He had the air of someone used to being seen or expecting that they would be seen. Lord, that glimpse as I hurried home from work, he burned himself on me. Two. I won't speak about the well-known times, the parties where the wine seemed endless, the days in bars, people gathered at his feet, his latest parable or anecdote. Before all that, there were just a few of us, ones who'd caught his eye, brushed past him in a queue. We bonded over our almost times with him, almost loved each other as a way of loving him. Not one of us could tell you who we spoke to first. Lord, it was like he was already speaking and we started tuning in. Three. Then after that, well, that was it. But we're inseparable. Or rather, we stuck so close to him, we might have all been brothers. Out each night, together. Us always following, several steps behind, caught fast in his slipstream. Following what he said. Don't go home with him. Don't wear that it's so last year. Until his phrases became the rules by which we lived and judged the others. We started dressing like him, maybe as him. Lord, show me a queer kid who doesn't want an answer to the question of themselves. Four. Other times, when he was tired, he let us talk. All gathered around, queer boys thrown out of home. We saw in him something we all wanted, someone we might be. How we all carried the ghosts of our father inside us. Still trying to please him, the sting of his right hand, our face. He never responded, only listened. Opened up a space where we laced our words in circles until they became unknotted. Lord, that was his trick. Staying quiet so long it seemed he was helping. Five. It's not true to say I didn't doubt or know a lot of it was bull. That time in hospital, those days of pestilence, four funerals a week, but then the meds and people living longer, almost overnight. Things shifted. I cured him, he'd tell me. He was dying and I brought him back. And why didn't I stop him? Make him see his own delusion. God knows, it's nice being in a gang in the in-crowd. Lord, it was the way the dance floor would part for him, and then for us. Six. And who was it first got closer? Of course, each one of us would say that it was us alone who did. In truth, his trick was seeming to love us all singularly, though we held our eyes in his The way he nodded or reached out a hand, we'd just feel caught in the single beam of him. I know I did. I know the times he took me to his bed and I'd confide in him, undress my wounds. Lord, for him, as if he were my father and I a child again. Seven. That time we all got high at Simon's and suddenly he said... Let me wash your feet. And nobody said no. So there he was, on his knees. The heavy warmth of the socks rolled off. Too tender to be sexual. How he held each one like an heirloom vase. How someone without thinking brought a bowl of water. Someone else brought towels. And the one he rubbed the soul of. Rolled back his head like a dead weight. Like a rock. Slipped his hands down, Lord, and simply held himself Like young boys do, to feel safe Eight One time I said I needed counsel When really I just needed him All of him Not the public him he toured round the scene But the him I'd seen that first day Him purely alone I said I'd wash his feet He must have had a heavy day. He protested, but only jokingly. Sat down on the edge of my bed. Let me take each foot in turn. I had no water, and so it dawned on me, Lord, to kiss them. Their leafy, dusty smell. And he laid down, spread out his arms. Nine. I took it as a call to service, kissed each toe, took them like morsels of bread in my mouth, and then the sole, the heel creased like paper, then the ankle, then ran my tongue up the inside of each thigh, heard him purring almost, and then the tongue back down, and up again, both fast and slow, something joyful born of repetition. He took my face in his hands. He looked down at me as though my face in his hands were the world. Lord, I gently cupped his thighs like water and pushed them skyward. 10. Thin splinters of the hairs around the sphincter, running my finger around them, letting each fine spelk rest on my nail, and then away. And then the parting, and the tongue, and the salt musk of him on me, and even then, him prone before me, it felt like a gift he was giving, offering himself up so that I might learn something of my own desire, might know my flesh better than before. The way he cradled me after. Lord, the way he lay with me. The way his hand pressed mine. The silence. Eleven. I still can't speak of how he left, of jealousies of minds poisoned into thinking other people favourites. That night I stayed with him. I sat at the end of the bed a long time. Him sprawled out on the sheet. I went out early to get breakfast and when I came back, he'd vanished. Home, I guess, to shower, to cleanse the night from his body. I'd been careful not to mark him, knew the others would not forgive. Lord, he was meant to be ours, not mine. My heart was so greedy. Twelve. I've come to think the condition of men is to want to be loved until they are and then to not, and so to run. To be loved is to be seen entirely, to be naked, to be judged. He left the way the streetlights leave all of a sudden, one morning. or we think he did. It wasn't so much a leaving as a slipping off. The way one slips a co off shoulders. I kept a photo, Lord, as the background of my phone. Wondered where he'd gone. Where could be better? Thirteen. A couple of drinks in, the talk always shifts to him. We still come to the same bars, same club, still dance. But really, we remember... Each gesture, a way of recalling, of reanimating him. The stories change so much; it's like he's still alive and multiplied, different inside each one of us. We finish each other's anecdotes. We raise a glass. It mirrors the light. We don't say missing. We don't say gone. Lord, I've been empty so long. He's been gone so long. I don't think I'd know him.
0: It's a really challenging poem because it really unsettles what we like to assume is a hard distinction between the sacred and the sexual. You're playing with the overlap between sex and worship, in a way. Can you tell me about what you were thinking going into this poem?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I've always been fascinated as an atheist in what is, it seems to me, an incredibly rich kind of Judeo-Christian language in which we might be able to explore desire, in which we might be able to explore love, and I think particularly sex as well. It it seems to me that most, if not all monotheistic religions, so religions of one kind of God, um, revolve around intense devotion, intense worship, but often of an absence. And so if we think about, say, um, the crucifixion and a kind of awaiting a second coming of, of Jesus on earth, that you have a kind of entire um, cultural value system that's built, therefore, around an absence, around a kind of pensive waiting that something might eventually happen. And somehow into that gap, into that lack, um, that exists around that, you can begin to feed other things. You can then begin to kind of feed kind of elements of queer desire into that as well. And whether or not it's a kind of queer space or a homosexual space, it's certainly a homosocial space. A lot of these stories that exist in the Bible, um, they're often about. Um, how men interact with other men they're often about how men behave around their sons they're often about kind of a a worship of men towards other men a love of men towards other men and part of it therefore is subversive so you take a kind of religion which is um oftentimes homophobic or kind of unwilling to enter into discourse with with a queer narrative but aside from that it's just about taking a, a what it seems to me to be a a narrative that already exists around worship, around devotion of men and just pushing that maybe a couple of steps further. I was going to say one step further, but maybe a, maybe a couple <laughs> maybe of steps Maybe the whole further. Rimming Jesus thing
0: is like maybe two, three steps. There's something kind of wonderful about meeting the text where it is and reading it literally, but not in the way that we might expect. So taking it as read that this is a space of... 13 men all engaged in this intense emotional process of like mutual transformation and worship and thinking through what that would really look like in a tangible human way
1: I mean ultimately all myth or parable comes out of a an attempt to concretize or to solidify an abstract so to solidify something that we can't see and therefore kind of bring it bring it into view and so a lot of religious kind of story comes out of an inability to grapple with um, how it is we exist in the world the kind of reality and I guess for a lot of young queer people there's a sense in which they come out onto the scene and they don't know what it is if it is that you kind of enter that kind of scene I remember when I first started going out at the age of 16 into these clubs and you don't know what it what it is what is this world that you kind of presented with and this was before and this was before the kind of representations that we have on TV now that maybe kind of give young people a slight more heads up about kind of what's to come. But certainly the sense in which that this relationship that I think this poem's really describing, which is this of this kind of very charismatic figurehead who kind of. Um, inspires a kind of devotional following is something that I saw again and again and was part of in the queer community, kind of young kids coming out and wanting kind of guidance and wanting someone to kind of show them. And if you need a kind of a kind of very mainstream example of that is the relationship between the younger and the older character in Queer as Folk in that someone comes out into a scene is kind of nervous and needs someone to kind of pick them up and kind of show them what it is and almost tell them the rules, tell them what not to do, tell them what to do, tell them how to dress, how to behave. And so I guess it was a way of of layering those two things together.
3: Ella? Um, I thought that was really, really gorgeous, and, and you read it amazingly. Um, and I was wondering about the theme of grief within it, that um, towards the end they sort of... Um, the the group of friends or the group of disciples they um, they experience grief I think in in your piece and I wondered if that was something that you were exploring
1: I'm really interested in in the sense of loss that seems inherently built into into these kind of stories that they exist They exist around this lack. They kind of oscillate around an absence, essentially, kind of. Um, And I think that's just something really interesting to then put back onto, again, a kind of queer community. And if we think about the kind of the AIDS crisis and things like that, that you have an entire generation um, just kind of absent and missing oftentimes. And so there's a sense in which, um, again, a kind of community that oscillates around a kind of lack that it can't quite speak about or can't quite name a younger generation that comes up and doesn't understand it. But that sense of grief and loss, I think, is in there. And that bit when kind of Jesus, I guess, thinks that he's cured someone in hospital. Mm -hmm. I was kind of, um, Calm to Bean wrote that great novella, Testament of Mary, where kind of, which is Mary's kind of ideas of what happened. And there's this great bit where Lazarus kind of comes back but really as a almost as like a zombie. He kind of is raised from the dead, but he's still dying constantly. And there's this kind of horrific thing. And I'm always interested in the idea of what these kind of great myths that have become cliches for us, these kind of parables and stories, if we take them literally, what do they look like? And what does it look like transposed back into the 21st century?
0: Often with these myths, it's it's almost, there's something gory about it. For instance, the doctrine of transubstantiation, which according to some Catholic traditions means that when you drink holy wine and eat blessed wafer, those literally turn into the blood and body of Christ in your mouth, which is cannibalism, right? <laughs> Surely.
1: And I mean, you know, I didn't want my piece to offend anyone. I think if anyone comes back and says that there's an issue with eroticizing these elements, then we come back with things like that and you say that there's an entire... Um, devotional structure built around taking the body of someone into one's own mouth, Jesus literally is often portrayed looking incredibly handsome with like a six-pack and kind of ripped abs and things like that. So right. the idea Jesus that... Jesus is buff. Jesus buff, which, you know, and and white when he never would have been as well. And so there's a sense in which if we talk about the kind of erotic... The, the eroticization of these things or the kind of fetishization of these things, that's already happening. It's just happening on a much more subliminal level, I think. I mean, ultimately, it just seems to me about this idea of a, a kind of sexual sublime. So this idea of being inherently attracted to something. So the romantic poet's words with et would have it in nature. I go out into nature and I see something that's so sublime I can't comprehend it. It's somehow above myself. I transcend my own body when I see it. It's that but put onto the body. And so um, what happens when you are in front of another body, you're attracted to the thing that might kind of destroy you, but it's also beautiful. And the idea that we, that you kind of transcend the self through that seems to me both religious and um, sensual.
0: And I think that's about all we have time for. We've had women roving free as seals in the depths of the ocean, women longing for life in the depths of Hades, and Jesus in the club being an absentee boyfriend. I've been your host, Eleanor Penny, and this has been Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. Our project producer is Tom McAndrew. Our podcast producer is Maya Bosworth. And this project is supported by the Arts Council England and the lovely folks at Spread the Word. Do join us again next time. See you there.